When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hiya, handsome. Come to join the party. Hey, party people. Welcome to the Pachama Party, where the photo booth is for ugly crying only. So grab your tissues, your vinyl pants, your drug of choice, and let's get into it. Also, don't do drugs. I'm your host, Remy Ramirez, and this week we're talking about trusting others. We talked about trusting ourselves a couple episodes back. So now we're turning the focus onto our ability to trust others, which can be just quite simply a deeply traumatizing experience, you know, just a big old poop sandwich on which many of us have dined. I looked up the definition of trust in psychology today, and of course, it's more complex than a one-liner. Here's part of how they define it with this list. One, trust is a set of behaviors, such as acting in ways that involve depending on another. Two, trust is a belief in a probability that a person will behave in certain ways. Three, Trust is an abstract mental attitude toward the proposition that someone is dependable, which I'm like, what? Why didn't you like, how about trust is the attitude that someone is dependable? I don't know. Seems a little wordy, whatever. Four, trust is a feeling of confidence and security that a person cares. Five, Trust is a complex neural process that binds diverse representations into a semantic pointer that includes emotions. Genuinely have no fucking idea what that last one means. But in case anyone else knows, there it is. There's number five. The other ones I think generally make sense. But getting to a place where we feel good doing those things after having experiences where trusting severely impacted our mental health. That's a whole other story. So to help us get clarity on how to navigate trusting others, particularly when every cell in our body is like, you idiot, we're never doing that again. I'm so happy to welcome licensed professional counselor and CEO of Apple Tree Counseling, Michelle Cobble to the pod. Hi, Michelle. Welcome. Hello. Hello. (laughs) I am so excited to have you on. And before we jump in, let's talk about your astrology a little bit. You're a Taurus. Oh, yes. 100% Taurus. <laughs> Very Taurus. <laughs> Very Taurus. With a uh, moon and Capricorn. So you're double Earth. Mm-hmm. I've actually found that a lot of the therapists who come on have Capricorn moons, if not Cap risings. But the thing I think is so interesting about a Cap moon is that the moon rules our emotional landscape, which of course can be very messy, right? And Capricorn likes order, structure, organization, hard work, right? So I think there's this tendency with that placement to want to organize and make sense of emotions and sort of apply order and stability to these like very unwieldy, abstract, like crazy feelings. Does that resonate for you in your work? 
It does a little bit just because I think me personally and another tourist that I know, we're both kind of like very emotional people where we're kind of always dealing with like different crises that are happening and like dealing with really complex issues and things like that. But we always want to apply, even if it's like a small problem, we feel out of order because it's like we want things to just make sense. We want things to be categorized you know we really want like things to like fit into a certain box even like relationships like you know some people some people can be really cool about like oh i don't really know what we are we're just kind of in this situationship personally that would just drive me absolutely insane and i can't help but to like want to be like okay but where are we we could be in just a talking stage we can be in a like we're just dating stage but i have to know which stage (laughs) (laughs) yeah i have to know what stage it is yeah (laughs) i am like that (laughs) yeah i mean i actually think that's very moon and capricorn because it's like it's that inability to be okay with the messiness. It's like this messiness, uh-uh, we need a bento box. We need some like color-coded files. <laughs> I like the bento box. I-, I might actually borrow that from you. And I'll give you credit the first time. And then after that, it's mine. That's my rule. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds great. That sounds great. Yeah, that's perfect. Okay, cool. Well, I'm excited to get into this with you. I'm going to dive into my experience with this stuff. While I do that, feel free to jump in with insights, feelings, psychic visions, (laughs) or you could just hang out, eat grapes, do Sudoku, you know, either way, when I'm done, I'll turn questions over to you. How does that sound? Sound good. Okay, cool. Awesome. So when I think about what trust was like as a kid, The immediately problematic person was my dad. My dad was super inconsistent and there was always mystery around it. So like, for example, I remember one time I went down to my grandparents' ranch. My dad's mom and stepdad live on a cattle ranch in South Texas. And I would go down there a ton when I was growing up. So I went down there and my dad was supposed to come down from Austin to visit. And I waited all day and he just never came. And when I asked my grandma about it, she told me he was in jail. And when I asked why, she said that he and his girlfriend had switched license plates on their motorcycles and the police didn't like that. And they got arrested, which in retrospect is just like obviously bullshit. (laughs) It doesn't make any sense. But I think she just didn't want to tell me that he'd like gotten a DUI or, you know, (laughs) did drugs or like whatever actually happened. But that kind of thing, it was really common with my dad where he would say he was going to do something and then it just never happened. What I'll say about it that I think is so interesting now from an adult perspective is that the way I interpreted that as a child was I'm not important enough for my dad to care. Like if I mattered more, he would have shown up. I definitely didn't feel safe with my dad, but I also didn't put the onus on him, him being untrustworthy became a story about my worth. My dad said he would show up or my dad said he was going to take me to this thing or my dad, whatever, but he didn't because I'm not important enough, right? Because that's what kids do. Kids make themselves the problem. They don't hold adults accountable. And because my dad was so inconsistent over the course of my childhood, that belief got hammered into me. He's not showing up or he's not dependable because I don't matter. Both my parents were intense ragers. 
They would have over the top rage meltdowns over things that didn't make any sense. So even though my mom was the one holding it all together in the physical sense, like we lived with her, she had a job and she worked, she made us dinner when she was home, even though all, you know, she was, she was consistent in all of those ways. Like my dad, she was emotionally unpredictable. And I definitely couldn't trust that I was emotionally safe with her. I remember one time I told her that I'd gotten caught cheating on an English quiz and I was feeling really upset and like guilty and sad about it. And she was really understanding and supportive and great. But then there was another time I showed her a poem I'd written after I was sexually assaulted by a neighbor. She read it, said, aren't you over this yet? And handed it back to me. <laughs> so her ability to provide love and support was unpredictable and her rage was unpredictable and made me feel unsafe. I couldn't trust that she would just show up for me in an emotionally consistent way. There's another piece in here that I want to add because I don't feel like I hear people talk about it enough, but I did not grow up feeling like I could trust the universe, you know, or like God, right? The world at large. I felt like God looked at all these other families and was like, here's a loving, hardworking dad. Here's a nice house. Here's an annual family vacation. Here's a happy mom who doesn't tell you she could have been really successful if it hadn't been for you, right? And then God looked at my family and was like, here's a poop I just did. You're welcome. And I felt that way, not just because my life was chaos and I was fucking bummed out about it, but also because starting at like five years old, I started praying for my mom to find a boyfriend because that was the thing she cried and cried to us about when we were little. She would ask us why no one loved her and why no man wanted to be with her. And I thought, you know, if she had a boyfriend, that would fix everything. She would finally be happy. And since my Catholic grandma had told me that prayer works and God is always listening to your prayers, and then my mom never got a boyfriend. I was like, cool. God heard me and was like, excuse you. I'm busy making other people's lives really cool. I don't have time for this. So I definitely went into adulthood, not having any kind of reference or model of relationships that I could place all of my trust in. Right. I didn't know what it felt like to feel fully safe with someone else. And I definitely didn't know what it felt like to believe that God or the universe, whatever that energy is, was on my team and that I could trust that too. So in other words, I just didn't understand trust at all from really anyone. And I'll add, I certainly didn't fully trust myself. So let's look at how that translated for me in adulthood. And I will preface by saying, not well. <laughs> Shocking outcome, I know. But I want to start with this story, which is actually from just like a month ago and then kind of work backward. So I live in a tiny town that's about an hour from Flagstaff, Arizona, and I have a friend, let's call her Annie, who lives in Flagstaff. I had to go up to Flagstaff for an appointment in the afternoon one day, and I had seen that there was an event happening up there that night, but not till like 10 p.m. that I really wanted to go to. So that gave me a gap of like seven hours in between where I had nowhere to go, but didn't want to have to like drive all the way back home and then back again that night. Annie was going to be out of town, but I knew where she hides her spare key. So I asked her if I could, you know, let myself in and hang out at her house during the day while she was gone. And she was like, yeah, of course. So I finished my appointment in Flagstaff 
And I'm just about to go over to her house and hang out until the event happens later that night when she sends me a text that says, hey, just FYI, Brandon is going to be hanging out at my house when you get there. So he'll let you in. Brandon is not his real name, by the way, of course. Well, Brandon is this dude that Annie's friends with that I don't like. I just don't fucking like this guy. I'd only met him like twice before, but he made sexual comments to me that made me really uncomfortable. I felt like he was undressing me with his eyes. I just was not into this dude's vibe. So I was like, fuck, I definitely don't want to go be alone with fucking Brandon. So I went to a coffee shop and got work done. And like three hours after she sent that text, I was like, okay, cool. I'm sure he's gone now. He has his own place in Flagstaff. I'm sure he just went home. So I drive over there. I don't see a parked car. I open the front door and there's Brandon watching TV and chilling on Annie's couch, which is not a couch. It's a tiny love seat. This will be important. Immediately, I'm like, God damn it. But now I'm kind of stuck. I can't be like, oh, you're here. Goodbye. <laughs> so I decided like, okay, I'm going to have a cup of tea and then I'm going to leave. So I say hi to him. I put my things down. And the first thing he says to me is there's tequila in the cupboard if you want some. And I was like, no, thanks. I'm actually going to make myself some tea. But right off the bat, it's like a weird, creepy vibe. I make the tea. I pull a bar stool out to watch the TV show he had on. And from where he's sitting in the middle of the tiny love seat, he goes, you can sit over here, which would essentially mean that I would be sitting very close to this dude. And I was like, nope, no, thank you. I finished the tea, get up and say, okay, well, I'm going to take off. And he gets this upset look on his face and he goes, I thought you were going to take a shower. And he said you were going to take a shower. And I was like, uh, what? Nope. Definitely never said I was going to take a shower. Okay, bye. And I fucking booked it out of there, jumped in my car, took off. But as soon as I started driving, I burst into tears. I mean, sobbing in my car, trying, trying to see through the tears and not crash. Right. Right away. I recognized that I was triggered. I was like, okay, that was creepy, but it's not why I'm having this like intense visceral reaction, even though, you know, it's not a chill experience, but it's not, I knew it wasn't behind having such a strong response. So I pulled over, I took some deep breaths and I was like, okay, what is coming up for me? And quickly I realized the reaction was about me not trusting men. And this story that I've carried, you know, that I've been working on for a very long time around not trusting men. So I was like, okay, this is about me feeling like I can't trust men. When I think about that statement, I can't trust men. What memory comes up for me right away? And immediately the memory of my ex-boyfriend, my high school sweetheart, let's call him Josh, was looming in my mind. And it was so big and so painful. And so, um, you know, if I'm being honest, unhealed, right? It was so raw. I know I've referenced this story before, but I don't know if I've ever laid it out. So here it is. When I was 18 and living in LA, my high school sweetheart and I were preparing to each go to college and go our separate ways. And we were trying to decide whether to stay together over the summer. I was like, I definitely think we should be together over the summer. And he was like, I think it will make breaking up that much harder in the fall. Let me just stop here and say, the way I perceived my relationship with him at the time was like, this is the guy who's helping me see that not all men are like my dad. 
My dad cheated on my mom. He was very much a womanizer. He was also really scary and mean. And, you know, as I mentioned, not consistent, not trustworthy. Josh was my proof that men were not all like that. And because of that, I felt like he was helping me heal some of those deep wounds that had been created in my relationship with my dad. So Josh, at the beginning of the summer, had gone to Mexico. And while he was there, he'd met a girl. And when he came back, he told me he'd met this girl and they were totally just friends, nothing romantic at all between them, and that he had talked to her a lot about me and about our relationship and about this conundrum we were having over whether or not to be together during the summer. He told me that while they were in Mexico, they'd made a plan to go camping in a group, her and her friends and him and his friends. (laughs) Michelle, you're shaking your head. I know. What the fuck? We all make decisions when we're young and we're just like not looking at the facts. We're like, but I can trust him. Yeah, that is 100% what happened. Yeah, 100%. Incidentally, I want to say his friends were also my friends, right? We were all a group of friends. So he tells me, Remy, there's nothing between me and this girl. It's just like going to church camp. That was a quote verbatim. So I'm 18. I'm stupid, right? I'm so deep in my own, uh, you know, problematic patterns and behaviors of like denial and whatever. I wouldn't know a red flag if it was the noose I was hanging from. Plus, this is the guy who loves me like crazy, who has protected my honor, right? Like, you know, we've had issues. We've broken up and gotten back together. But he's in my mind, he's always been loyal and honest uh, and just a good, solid person. Whether or not that's true, I mean, obviously, is very questionable preceding this moment in our relationship. But but that's where my head was at at the time. So I say, okay, go on this camping trip that's just like church camp. Get the advice you need from this girl. And let's talk when you're back on Wednesday. And off he goes. And Wednesday comes and I wait patiently by the phone. And Thursday comes and I wait all day by the phone. And Friday and Saturday. And finally on Sunday, I've been sitting by my phone for like a thousand fucking years. I'm absolutely beside myself. I'm sobbing. I'm a mess. I don't know what's happening. This was before cell phones. And every time I call his house, he's never there. I'm thinking he's this. This is literally what I'm thinking in this moment. He is so distraught about what to do about us. And it's hurting him so deeply that he's avoiding me. (laughs) That is what 18 year old innocent Remy thought was going on. Finally, I call over to our mutual friend's house, the friend, you know, everyone has this friend, the friend with the lax parents where everyone like drinks and hangs out and stays over, you know, this dude was also on the camping trip. He picks up the phone and I'm just crying. I ask him if Josh is there. He says, hold on. Another friend gets on the phone. Let's call him Andrew. Andrew was also on the camping trip. So I'm crying when Andrew gets on the phone. I tell him I don't know what's happening. I haven't heard from Josh. I'm so upset. Andrew says he's coming over to talk to me. And when he does, he's very matter of fact. He's like, Josh hooked up with this girl in Mexico. He knew he'd be hooking up with her again on the camping trip. It's why he went on the camping trip. And the reason he hasn't called you is because he brought her back to L.A. after the trip. He's been showing her around and hanging out with all of us. We've been going to Disneyland, the Santa Monica Pier, Pasadena, like whatever all the fuck they were doing. And then he tells me she's still in town. He's still with her. And that's why you haven't heard from him. So 
there were two things there, right? One, all my friends went on this trip knowing what the deal was. And none of them told me because they all went to hook up with her friends. Then they came back and hung out with Josh and this girl and never reached out to me about it. I only knew about it because I called over there sobbing. So obviously there was the loss of trust in these guys who I thought I was really close with, who essentially betrayed my trust so that they could get laid. Right. And by the way, Andrew and I had been super close since we were 12, like really young. He'd only known Josh for a couple of years. Number two, which is, of course, the bigger, more obvious thing. This person who I totally trusted with all my heart, who I'd never lied to or cheated on, who I thought really cared about me and cherished me and would always be honest with me, was suddenly the manifestation of my worst fears. And very quickly, everything crumbled for me. It was sort of like that fucked up part of a horror movie where the protagonist finds out that the person who they've been running from the serial killer with is actually the serial killer. And now they're going to get fucking chopped up or whatever. Like my whole paradigm fell apart. And I realized that this guy who I thought really loved me just traded in our years long relationship where we told each other everything and cried with each other and essentially took each other's virginity. He traded all of that in for a fuck fest with a girl he barely knew that lasted for a few weeks. And it made me feel like wow, maybe all that stuff he said to me, all of that sweetness between us, maybe that was just because he was just trying to get laid. Maybe I misread the entire relationship. I felt so deeply disposable and I felt really stupid. And in the same way that I put the onus on myself with my dad when I was little and made his behavior my fault, in this situation with Josh, I did the same thing. I told myself, if you'd only been prettier, this never would have happened. He wouldn't have been tempted by this other girl. I, I don't really know fully how to put what I experienced into words because it was such a seismic shock to my mental health. And and literally, it felt like... um this uh, this break, it felt like a break that I hadn't had before. Um, I, I mean, I was wrecked. I became anorexic. I cried for literal years over it. I mean, I entered a depression that I couldn't shake for years. It felt like everything I did after that point was in an attempt, well, not forever after, but for years after was in an attempt to pretend that I was okay. I joined a sorority. I got this trendy haircut. I was going to tanning, tanning salons, right? Like, but underneath all of that was this maniacal feeling of trying to make life okay, of trying to force everything around me to look good so that no one would know that the whole thing had annihilated me. And the belief I created then was men don't love women. They just use them for sex, not just because of what happened with Josh, but also because my guy friends, right, like had allowed all that to happen to me without saying anything because they were trying to get laid. And also because my dad, my dad had traded in his whole family to be able to sleep around with women he didn't really care very much about. And I, I, I want to just kind of add, <laughs> this is something that I sort of recently realized, but I have not had an actual relationship with a man since then. That was over 20 years ago. It's not to say I haven't dated or I haven't like had experiences, 
but I, but I haven't had an actual relationship. And I want to name that because like, maybe there are a lot of reasons for that, but I, I wonder sometimes what, what would have happened if this experience hadn't happened to me, right? That's how big it was. And, and all that's to say, when I lost my trust in Josh, I lost my trust in men generally at that point. And I also want to add, I've definitely made strides in healing that belief, right? Like I've actually done work specifically on it, which I'll talk about in a minute. But if you are looking to corroborate a view, the view that men don't love women, they just use them for sex. It's a very easy one to corroborate in our culture. I mean, just look at the Me Too movement. It's not like there are only four guys in the world using women for sex. The whole culture is built around objectifying women, which I know probably sounds like I'm saying that all men are shitty. It's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is that sometimes when our trust is broken so deeply, it becomes a much bigger story than, oh, this person in specific and only this person isn't trustworthy. And we will often look for outside evidence to support our wounded belief that we can't trust. In my case, it just happened to be a really easy belief to find evidence for. And this moment with this creepy ass dude getting mad that I wasn't going to take a shower definitely triggered that pain that I carry and that sense that I have to be hyper vigilant with men because they're not tr trustworthy because they don't see us as human. They're just trying to get laid. In other words, something that happened to us 20 plus years ago that broke our trust can still be informing how we feel and show up in the world and relate to others. And even for me, I've been aware of that belief. I've, I've been working on healing it since literally 2018 and it still comes up for me. So I guess what I want to say is that trust is a really fragile thing or, or, or any way it can be. And we need to be conscientious with our trust and where we place it. That example pretty, I think, egregious, right? Which, you know, makes it really clear cut. But sometimes things happen that erode trust that are less overt. So here's an example of that. This one's also more recent. I had a friend who was, you know, my best friend. We'd been best friends for years. Or anyway, I thought, I should say, I thought we were best friends because she had said to me many times, you're my person. So it felt very much like, this was someone who wanted that kind of connection with me. And also we pretty much did everything together. So it wasn't too much of a leap. Like, yeah, you say you're my person and we do everything together. We're best friends for sure. But we'd been having issues for a few reasons. And one of them was that when she would tell me that I'd done something she didn't like, I would really listen and be like, wow, yes, I get that. I get what you're saying. Or, okay, I'm a little confused about this. Can you explain it to me so I understand? And then being like, oh, okay, got it. Yes, I totally get why that would be hurtful for you. I'm so sorry. But when I would tell her that she had hurt me or that something she had done bothered me, I would get a list of all the reasons why I was wrong, why she hadn't done anything wrong and why I was actually the problem. This came to a head after she'd done several things that really hurt my feelings, including... <laughs> Uh, there had been some like behavior that was like, uh, just really making me question how close we were. And when I asked her like, Hey, by you're my person, like, like, do you mean that we're best friends when you say that? And she was like, no, <laughs> no, that was just something that I say, you know? And, and no, I, I say that to people <laughs> and, and I, I was like, 
wow, fuck, you know, talk about breaking someone's trust, just literally telling someone something for years that just isn't true when really what you meant was like the opposite of it, like the opposite of you're my person is like, you're not my person. And I say that to lots of people. It's like, what? I mean, I'm laughing because it's just so crazy. Anyway, I was really hurt for obvious reasons. And I was trying to explain that to her and, and also explain to her like, Hey, when these things come up, when I'm feeling hurt, like I feel really shut down by you. I need to feel seen, heard and held, right? Like I need you to reciprocate what I give to you when you're hurt. I need you to listen and try to understand where I'm coming from and be like, wow, I really get that this is really painful for you. And I'm so sorry. I understand where you're coming from. So I'm telling her that this is what I need after having my heart kind of broken by finding out this person I thought was my best friend for years is not. And the first thing she says is, are you tired of having these conversations? I I like very carefully tiptoed around that. I was like, no, I'm, I understand that this can be anxiety provoking, but I think these conversations are really important. But, you know, I'm like in my head, I'm like, what the fuck? And then after saying, you know, like, hey, I just, here's the thing. I need you to be kind to me right now. I'm in a lot of pain. This is what I need. I need to feel heard. I need to feel seen by you. She says to me, do you even want to be friends anymore? And that ultimately ended our friendship. I waited for her to apologize for that for a while. And when she didn't, that was the nail in the coffin. It sounds like that friendship was honestly needing to like hit its, hit its like goal, hit its like, you know, it hit, it, it hit its moment of the, the link has expired <laughs> because think about like, think about friends that we had in high school. I don't talk to anybody from high school anymore. And I don't know many people that do. I know some that do, but it's because they have grown and evolved and they ended up having more things in common than just in high school where you got to kind of find your tribe and you kind of stick together to survive. You know, you kind of have that goal of like, we're going to survive high school. We like some similar things. We like some similar guys or girls or whatever we like. And then high school ends and you're no longer like, well, we're in this tribe because we all happen to live in the same district and we all happen to be around the same age. And all of a sudden, another world opens up to you of people that don't live in the same area as you and the people are not the same age as you. And you find yourself gravitating towards other people. It's a natural progression. And the 30s, oh my gosh, out of every time period, the 30s is like the biggest time to reevaluate friendships, to look at, do we actually have the same goals? Because the goals really change in your 30s too. You go from like, I want somebody who's going to party with me, like leaving the 20s into like, holy shit, we're almost to 40 now. Where is our life going? Where's our career going? Where, you know, are we married? Do we got kids? Are we single? And that right there will divide people like nobody's business. I've seen it happen. It's happened in my life, getting divorced at 31. 30s are a friendship killer and a restarter at the same time. So that friendship hit its moment where it was like a good thing maybe in your life for a certain time period, but it hit its expiration date. That's a reflection on the goals have changed. You know, some people are going to stay in that. I just want to like hang out and like talk bad about people. They kind of want to like stay in that kind of friendship zone of like the twenties, but other people have moved on and are like, okay, now I want to get my health in order. Okay. Now I want to travel more. Okay. Now I want to 
extend past the current things that I'm doing. And we need people to go there with us. Right. So that's, I think, like a big thing of balance here where it's like, you can't take it so personal. That's the problem. And I, I suffer from this. I am the poster child for taking things personal. I've always been, to be honest. But it's always easier because the child does that. The child takes things as this is mm. my fault. They can't help it. They don't have the wider worldview yet because they haven't been able to explore the world yet. They don't understand the psychology of humans. They don't understand how people develop and how they grow and how things, how people make certain choices, not based on, I want to hurt this person or this person's not pretty enough or good enough for me, but that they make all these choices for all these varied reasons. So it's like, as a child, it's just, it becomes that where it's like, it is our fault. And sometimes we don't, we, we don't move past that. So there's this scale that I like to talk to my clients about a lot where it's like on one side of the scale, it's where we, it's where people, other people's decisions, we take a hundred percent as a personal thing on us. It has to do with us, our character, our looks, our value, uh, what we bring to other people in many other ways. It has a hundred percent to do with that, why they exited our life or why they made the decisions they made. And then there's the other side of the scale, which some people fall in, where nothing I do or other people do has anything to do with me. Mm -hmm. I'm great. So I'm not responsible for any of the decisions I make. And I'm not responsible for how I treat other people because it's not really on me. It's on everybody else. Neither one of these sides are good. <laughs> these are very, very dangerous um, ways of looking at things and very painful ways of looking at things that don't help growth in any area of our life. And so I, what I try to do is I try to get people to, I try to help them as well as help myself, try to move towards the center of that, where it's not all, it's not all personal, but it's also not like we're making decisions that don't have to do and don't end up hurting somebody else. So for him to you know, decide to uh, throw away that relationship. Oh, you better believe that that did not have actually to do with you. Yes. I love that. And I do talk, I will talk a little bit about taking things personally, but I love that you brought up. Cause like, here's a meme that I see constantly on Insta and it's like, um, you are not responsible for other people's emotions. And I'm like, Okay, that is true to a point, but if you're just going around lying, being a dick, like, you know, showing up the way my friend showed up and just being like, well, I'm not responsible for your feelings. I know I've been saying you, you know, to you for years that you're my person when I didn't mean it at all, but like, oh, that hurts you. Well, I'm not responsible. You, you know, like not that, not that she did that, but I'm just saying if people come into every relationship saying I'm not responsible for your feelings, it gives, especially people on the narcissistic scale, a lot of room to just act like complete dick faces and have no consciousness around it, you know? So yeah, I love that you brought that in. Thank you so much. And um, in terms of this, this thing with my friend, I wanted to bring that piece in because trust isn't just like, I know you won't lie or cheat, right? Like that is part of it. Those are, those are some of those big betrayal trust components, right? But trust is also, I know that you will take my feelings seriously. You'll be kind when I'm suffering, you know, or if you're not, because sometimes we fuck up, right? If you're not, you'll apologize and be accountable. If you hurt me or upset me without realizing it and I bring it up to you, you'll be open to hearing it. You'll empathize. You'll want to work through it with me instead of shutting me down, right? So there are these more like, 
um, nuanced pieces of what trust means, but feeling safe with people doesn't just mean, I know you'll do what you, what you say. I know you won't lie to my face. I know you won't sabotage me intentionally or whatever. Some of those bigger betrayal pieces are, those are, those are important too, of course, but trust is also knowing that people can treat our vulnerability with care and empathy. So, so you evaluating with her, where you are in your place in her life was really, really good because that was a sign of maturity. And it's also taking people's emotions seriously. Even if you don't understand, that is a upper level of maturity and stability that not everybody's going to be able to do. When Again, when you're in that younger stage of friendship where you guys just want to have like a fun time, you don't really care. You don't think much about like what's going on with this other person. They're just somebody you chill with. You're just somebody that you go to the club with that you go do this and that with. It's not of big importance. But once you start to become very personally involved with somebody and your friends over time and we move into that higher level of friendship we want to know because we're exposing really personal things about us and we're trying to figure out who can we really trust out here so it's interesting because i didn't think about this in preparation for today's um for today's uh podcast but i have i had a former client of mine who had very big blinders on to being able to identify who is somebody that is a positive person to begin a relationship in this person's life. And I found that it was constantly this, like whoever kind of showed up was like invited into the house. And and I'm like, well, hold on, (laughs) this might not be the way to do it. It's just whoever, you know, like an open invitation to come inside my private area and be a part of my life. Well, hold on a second. And I actually made this quadrant. So I just now put it, I wrote it and I'm showing you right now. But basically it's a quadrant because there's stability, maturity, healthy, and kind. So a lot of people, stability, maturity, healthy, and kindness. Now, This goes for romantic relationships and friendships. You can have a lot of things different from somebody else, like different tastes in movies, different tastes in music. I I like having things different from a partner because I feel like it opens me up to new things. But if we have a very vast, different, different understanding of what stability means, if we have a really different understanding of what healthiness means we're going to have problems. We're not going to be able to grow together because those are some of the things that I have found in my work with people in general, that if you have big differences in, you're not matched up to be able to build something together. So what were you about to say? No, I was just going to say, I'm obsessed with this quadrant. I've used it. And my my client that I used it with a lot has it memorized too. And I'm always just like, TM now, hold on. You can't steal it from me now. <laughs> no, y'all, y'all heard it here first. This is Michelle's quadrant. Um, uh, I think it's great. I think that's so, so helpful. Thank you so much for jumping in with that because you're right. I think a lot of times we are kind of like, oh, we have fun chemistry or we like, we like doing, we have similar interests, right? Like some of those things that are more easily recognizable. These, these moments come along where I go like, oh, I can't trust you to be kind when you've hurt me. Okay. Yeah. This is, uh, this is not going to work. Because that person could be kind, but not in the same way that you view kindness. For example, this is a common one that I say, somebody's value of kindness means maybe taking in stray cats 
Now that's wonderful because these cats need a home, but say you're trying to build a relationship with somebody and your idea of taking the stray cats is not an act of kindness, but more of like, oh my dear Lord, I'm living in chaos now. It's just that everybody's allowed to be wherever they want to be on this quadrant. You know, there's no right answer for this quadrant because we're all growing and developing at different rates, especially in different areas. You might be in a really good place with kindness and healthiness, but you're working on the stability part or you're working on the maturity part or you're working on the kindness part. You've been hurt a lot. And at this point, you get an opportunity to, to like smack a bitch and you just take that opportunity. We're all at different areas sometimes. So we got to have some similarities in those core values and in the direction that we want to see ourselves move. I love that. Thank you so much for jumping in with that, Michelle. So, okay. So what has worked for me in healing trust? Let me just start by saying I'm not 100% totally healed with my trust issues. I still have... I still have to work through the fear and take really good care of myself when my trust stuff gets triggered. And I want to say that for me, that's part of it. When I'm not paying attention, my go-to is to feel like the universe is against me. A bad thing could happen at any second and men are trash and will totally unravel your life. (laughs) I used to respond to that by being really hard on myself. Like, oh, the reason the secret doesn't work for you is because you're so fucked up and you think the universe is against you. So you manifest that, you know, like blah, blah. And then with guys, the self-talk was like, of course, no guy is ever going to want to be with you because you're so distrustful of men. You'll be single forever. You, You probably subconsciously push them away, blah, 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 right? But the truth about trust stuff is that when your trust has been broken, especially when it's been broken more than once around a similar issue, like dating, for example, it makes sense that you have trust issues, right? That's not proof that something's wrong with you. It's proof that your responses are in good working order. Not that you want to stay in that state of hypervigilance, but it makes sense that you feel distressful after your trust has been fucked with. So for me, the first thing was having compassion for myself and releasing that um, shame-based self-talk that was so super critical, you know, which is just insult to injury. You don't need that. You've been through enough. In terms of the way I was sort of raised, right? And like the parents that I had in the sense that I wasn't ever safe in the world. I've set boundaries with both my parents so that I'm not around scary, erratic behavior. I've also set boundaries with other people who are showing up with scary, erratic behavior in my life. In order to do that, I'll say you have to be working on your ability to trust yourself. So if you haven't listened to the episode I recently put out on trusting yourself, I recommend that one. I also have another really good one on boundaries, which might be helpful for people, but minimizing, if not eradicating my exposure to unpredictable rage meltdowns has helped me so much to feel safer in this world. And I've had to rely on my own trust that I put in myself that I am strong enough and safe enough to set boundaries with people, right? Like I'm a fucking adult now. I'm not six years old. If someone is showing up in a way that makes me, that triggers my trust and my ability to feel safe, like, no, my no boundaries, boundaries are happening in terms of the bigger picture and how that behavior impacted me, instilling the sense that the world is a scary place and the universe loves to hurt me or doesn't give two shits about me. Right. I'll be honest that the most healing thing for me for that has been working with angel oracle decks. I know that's not for everyone, but I'm going to put that out there for anyone. It might help. 
getting these loving, reassuring messages, getting solid guidance from angels and spirit guides, that has been so key for me in realizing that the powers that be are 100% on my team and trustworthy. I really love Doreen Virtue's deck messages from your angels. It's a great starter Oracle deck for anyone who might be looking for that. But another thing that I've realized, and this this one is good for atheists or anyone who isn't woo-woo, right? Is that I feel safer in the world when I have a therapist to help me reframe my interpretations of things that happen in my life. My brain was sort of trained to go into worst case scenarios and doom thinking and assuming the worst and on and on. Having a therapist who helps me reframe my thoughts and my perspectives that has been huge for me in looking at a situation from a totally new angle and seeing that it doesn't have to mean that the world is gleefully sabotaging all that I love and treasure in this world. And a lot of the things that I thought had happened because the universe hated me actually ended up working to my benefit in the end. And, you know, getting cheated on by that duder when I was 18 helped me get out of a toxic relationship. Uh, I mean, for a few years, and then I got right back together with him. And then he cheated on me again. And then I got out once and for all. But hey, if your 20s aren't a fucking dumpster fire, you know, are you even living? So on that note, let me switch into healing trust after being blindsided, you know, with a big, terrible betrayal. I'll tell you what didn't work. Okay. Pretending I didn't just get pulverized emotionally by someone and trying to seem like everything was cool while I was like, starving myself in my dorm and crying in between all my classes. Of course, you know, I was 18 and I had no idea how to take care of my mental health at the time. But the first thing that helped me years later when I was finally coming to terms with my anguish was allowing grief. That's part of how we move through a massive trust disruption. We have to grieve that loss and give ourselves space to be furious and depressed. And also, I want to say to miss that person who hurt us. And I think that's a huge key in all of this that no one likes to talk about. But when someone we love disrupts our trust and we decide to leave, it's okay to miss that person, even if they lied to us, even if they betrayed us. And I, you know, I'll say here, In 2017, I was sexually assaulted by my roommate, who was also my best friend at the time. And obviously, you know, I moved out right away. I left the situation. But part of why I felt so fucked up over the whole thing once I'd gotten a new place beyond the obvious was because of how much I missed him. I felt so critical of myself for missing the person who had betrayed me so terribly. But of course we miss those people, right? The reason we were in relationship with them in the first place was because we saw them as loving and caring and trustworthy. And we get to grieve the loss of that perception. And we get to miss the relationship that we had with that person, with the person we thought was trustworthy. That doesn't make us fucked up. That's natural and normal. Allowing ourselves that pain without picking on ourselves when that comes up for us is part of the healing process. Or anyway, it was part of my healing process. But back to the cheating scandal, that one hit me so hard and impacted how I saw all men. Of course, I was in a fragile state with men anyway because of my dad. But that cheating experience really sent me down a dark road of feeling like men were all the same. And the thing that has been most helpful for me in untangling from that blanket thinking has been EMDR. I've brought it up multiple times before, but it bears repeating. It's a practice that was created to work with PTSD in war veterans, but now it's used for all kinds of PTSD and complex PTSD. 
the premise of it is that you have traumatized thoughts that are stuck on the right side of your brain where you process emotions, but the left side of your brain, which processes logic, it can't get to them because they're stuck on the right side. So with EMDR, you think about the traumatic event while following a light with your eyes that goes back and forth. And that stimulates the left side of your brain so that you can start to turn beliefs like men don't love women into more right-sized thoughts like Josh wasn't worthy of my trust. And there are plenty of men who also aren't worthy, but there are men who are, right? So in terms of my friend, I'll say, who showed me that she wasn't trustworthy when it came to reciprocating respect and empathy, There was that same danger of turning that specific situation into a traumatized belief about friendships in general, right? Because the truth is that it would be really easy to be like, fuck friendships, fuck best friends. I'm not doing that ever again, right? But what really helped me in this situation was, like you mentioned, Michelle, I didn't take it personally this time. Her behavior was so clearly not a reflection of me but it also wasn't a reflection of anyone else, right? It wasn't like her showing up in this way says anything about any other person I might be friends with in the future. All it was, was a reflection. Yes, Michelle's holding up her quadrant. Yes. (laughs) Reflection on her maturity. Yeah, right. It was was, like I was going to say, it was a reflection of some of the places where she still has space for growth. And that's it. The other part of it was trusting myself enough to know when I was done for me, right? Because you can be like, yeah, but they take cats in, right? But at the end of the day, if they take cats in because they love cats, but they tell you you're wrong and there's something wrong with you every time you say that they've hurt you, like that you can't trust them in that way that you really need. And for me, I was like, I really need this. I can't trust you to do it. So I have to go. And I've had enough experiences to know that some people where they are right now in their lives, they can't show up in ways that build trust with me. It's a reflection of them, but it's on me to take the appropriate action when people are consistently that way, right? It's like, you don't keep petting the dog who bites you. You go find other dogs and you can be mad at that dog if you want. But really the thing to know is that just because that one dog bit you doesn't mean all dogs bite, but it does mean that if you keep petting that dog, ultimately that's on you, girl, right? So- There's an element of trusting others that involves trusting ourselves to leave those people we can't trust so we can find the ones who we really can. Okay. Yay. Michelle, I am so excited to get into this with you. I feel like we've already kind of covered some of these bases, but let me start with this question. I recently did an episode on trusting yourself. And one thing that I was thinking about as I was preparing for this episode is that When you have a history of feeling like you can't trust yourself to make good decisions, it can be hard to know when you can trust people and when you can't, right? Personally, I've had a lot of experiences where I thought I could trust someone and then I got burnt really bad, which made me feel like, wow, I really can't trust myself to know when I can trust others. Can you speak to that feeling of my picker's broken? There's something wrong with me when it comes to picking good, trustworthy people and like how we shift out of that feeling? Well, it's interesting because a lot of the really good, the stories that you were talking about of your past have a lot to do with like, again, it's like your picker's not exactly broken, but the question of the quadrant, it has to do with ultimately you, because again, it goes back to like, are are your and my ideas the same? Well, what are mine? 
You know, do I, do I know where I'm at? Am I really at where I want to be and where I want to be with other people? Cause that's the thing about the quadrant is many times we, we tend to not choose the right people to be in our lives because they don't match up to where we're at. But sometimes we actually don't match up to the people in which we're trying to find out there in the world. And that's actually something my best friend tries to kind of lovingly, but also in a very real way, try to get me to understand sometimes is that it's not that all these other people are not good for me. It's that I have to be good for myself and I have to be, and I have to know where I'm at and know where I need to encourage that growth. If I want somebody who's this stable, I have to try to get there too. You know, I have to try to work on my healthy ways. I have to work on my maturity, my stability. And in my early twenties, I was extremely immature. I was also coming out of an abusive household. I did not have any examples of a good marriage going on in my life whatsoever or good relationships in general. Um, So I had a lot of work to do and I ended up getting married very young and then I got divorced at 31, which was probably one of the best things that's ever happened to me, honestly. But it's, it's about reevaluating where's our relationship with ourselves and what kinds of people are going to be the best ones to push us. You know, I can reflect on our psychology as a person and say that in the situation where you were at your Was it your friend's house or your roommate's house? And the guy was like, are you going to take a shower? Which is like, um, whoa. Right. That was my friend's house. Yeah. Okay. That's right. That was actually your anxiety trying to help you. We give anxiety such a bad rap sometimes, but the system is in place within us for a reason. Our body and our mind actually are trying to work towards our survival all the time. They, they, they want us to survive. They don't want us to get in danger. It looks at risk. And then it tries to help us be like, are you sure you want to, you know, are you sure you want to jump off this cliff? And you see the water, but ha- but do you see the rocks though? <laughs> so it's trying to like stop us from making decisions that are ultimately might result in our death or our pain or any type of risk. So our anxiety is a good thing. The problem is, is that sometimes it gets an overdrive and then it makes things that are not risky seem extremely risky or things that are low risk seem like they're very, very bad for us. So that's when anxiety comes in to try to hurt us. But your anxiety was right on track at that moment. It was like your instincts were kicking in and saying something is wrong. And when you listen to it, you were able to get yourself out of very probable danger. And so sometimes we have to listen to that instinct and also listen to that best friend voice that we have in the back of our head. Oh my goodness. I can't tell you how many times I've talked to clients about using their best friend voice. If we try to ask ourselves in a situation about what we should do, I might take my best friend Whitney's voice and say, what would Whitney tell me to do in this situation? I know what I want to do, (laughs) but what would my best friend, my loving best friend who's with me in my body and in my mind and my spirit while I'm going through these different situations, what would they tell me to do? you know, and listen to that voice, that voice that says something is wrong here. It's telling you that for a reason. It's trying to protect you. It's trying to say, uh, this might not be good for us. Now, sometimes it's on overdrive again, but 
a lot of times our best friend voice doesn't fail us. And that's where that picker should come in. If I had a best friend and I was on this date, would my best friend say, yes, keep hanging out with this guy, see where it goes? Or would the best friend be like, you need to move on from this. This is not for your best good. Yeah, I love that so much because you're absolutely right. I hadn't thought of that. What I was doing was I was doing the thing where I was going, oh, Remy, you're so distrustful of men. How are you ever going to find a guy if you're so, but like, you're right. No, I felt weird about it. I mean, it's why I waited three fucking hours. He ended up being there. I left as like soon as felt right. And, you know, maybe I should have just turned and walked out. Maybe I should have just been like, oh, you're here. Gross. Bye. <laughs> you know, maybe. But I love what you're saying is that when we have that, like, oof, I don't like that. I know for me, I have gotten so critical of myself and been like, this is why you can't manifest things. This is why you don't have a boyfriend, you know, like whatever the fucking shameful self-talk is. But what you're saying is like, yeah, we can really lean into that. I love that. Sometimes the best friend voice is also like, you're overthinking this. Just take it one step at a time and see what happens. You don't have to commit to anything, Michelle. You can just take your time with this. Of course, I'm impatient. I'm a Taurus. I go in. I'm persistent towards the goal, which makes me an extremely stubborn person. But I also like sometimes have that those moments where I'm like, no, let me exit out of this real quickly. And my best friend voice will say, well, hold on, Michelle, take in more time and look at the situation and give it time to develop and see what happens. And this applies to many different types of situations. So I want to say the best friend voice isn't always saying, get the hell out of there. Sometimes it's saying, just give it a little time. And we have to listen to that too. But your, your instincts were right on target. Yeah. Thank you. Okay. Can you talk about what trust looks like in anxiously attached folks versus avoidantly attached folks and what it looks like for those folks to kind of change their relationship to trust? Definitely anxious attachment. People stay very preoccupied in their relationships and also kind of just tend to worry a little bit about things that are like, for example, they tend to always take situations where their boyfriend leaves them or their girlfriend leaves them, you know, where they lose, where, you know, their boss is no longer on their side as like, Oh, that's because of me. It's all me. You know, like I'm undesirable. I'm unlovable. There's something just innate about me that people just can't love me. But then we, then we cling to that, that love, that care, because sometimes we're just not fully attached to our own self. And we're just very like, waiting for life to bring us back around to something else that's happened that same oh this is how i get left this is how i get abandoned this is how this happens for me so having a good relationship with a therapist who can help you to look at things objectively and who can be like eh, or <laughs> and help us to reframe those thoughts to reprocess those thoughts to be able to look at past situations in different lights as well um emdr is absolutely fantastic i am a emdr baby now because i am a newbie in it i just got trained back in the end of september and it was definitely a life changer um we had to do emdr on ourselves in a group during our training emdr is just a life changer it absolutely helps you to reprocess old feelings that are lingering and that don't have to do with things that we're still that, that we know the truth's on, but we still are holding on to those old feelings. That child, that inner child that we have inside of us is still like 
mm, that hurts because people were mean and people were mean because you were ugly. And it's like getting to reprocess the stuff that's back in our old brain is very, very important to be able to move into the future. So are you saying that you think for maybe anxiously attached folks and maybe also avoidantly attached that EMDR could be really helpful? It can be extremely helpful because sometimes, I mean, I find this to be a truth all the time is that people who are anxiously attached and also avoidantly attached are constantly aware of like the better idea of like what you said um, when you were talking about when you did EMDR and you being able to finally believe the positive belief we know those positive beliefs. Like we know that we're not undesirable. I know I'm not undesirable. I know you're not undesirable. We know these things, but it's only staying in the logical part. The feeling inside is still, I'm hurt. People don't like me. I'm undesirable. That's why they leave. There's something innate about me that makes me this way. That's a child's thinking. Again, it's very like straightforward. Oh, this person kind of like your dad. They left because they didn't love me and they decided to choose something other than me. You know, kids were not my friends growing up because I was ugly and gross and that's how they saw me and that's how I was. So see, those are those kid beliefs that sometimes will still linger on way past adulthood. And even when we say, oh, I know that's not true. Your brain still is not there yet. So EMDR helps your brain to catch up where you know you actually need to be and, and how you can be able to see things now in a full light, taking in both sides of everything and not just looking at it from one point of view. So I think EMDR is a huge life changer. And then I also think, again, working with a therapist and having people in your life to help you to reframe sometimes the old beliefs to be able to look at the new things. And ultimately, new relationships of any kind are always a chance to grow as people, but they do bring risks and you can't have the benefits if you're not willing to take some of the risks and we all know this, but then it's a choice. It's a choice. If I want this relationship, I might get hurt at the end of it and it's not going to go well. And there's no guide to when you meet somebody, Oh, this is exactly how, you know, you can trust them. There's no guide. Where's the guide. I need a guide. Anybody got the guide? Hello out there. Please, please send us the guide. (laughs) (laughs) And I just get a copy of it. I'll, I'll bring it back. I promise. We will return it to you, but just let it let us Xerox the fucking guide, please. You'll you'll get it back in some shape or form. But no, there's no guide out there. That's a bunch of bullshit. There's never a way that you can always tell. You can look if their words and their actions line up, yes, but everything's a risk. Everything's a risk. So you can go on one side and take no risk but have no benefits, or you can jump for everything and find yourself really broken and hurt. It's you got to find balance in so many things in life. And that's where being able to try things, even if they seem scary, and being able to dig through past things with EMDR will both come together and a lot of times help us to make those decisions. But it's not foolproof. Let me ask you this. After I've trusted someone and been hurt, I can get into really black and white thinking about others, right? Like this person is a complete piece of shit. Fuck them completely, right? Or, you know, like men all want the same thing. In the work you've done with your clients, how have you worked with that? Like, how do you work with that traumatized black and white thinking? I try to find ways many times that we have that kind of grayness in ourselves to say, well, well, could other people also have that gray? But 
the hardest, most difficult time to try to see some gray is when something is still fresh. And I don't push it with people that are like, have just had a breakup, just been fired from a job, uh, just been fired from a friend, just lost somebody. It's not the time to see gray. And by trying to get them to see gray, you will only make them see more black or make them see more white. And they're not going to get to that gray. Nothing is gray when you're experiencing something really fresh. You know, you have to have time to be able to experience that grief and to be able to, like you said, kind of miss the person. And that kind of resonates with me because I think that that's one of the one of the steps of grieving is being able to either make things your own or to be able to make peace with not having that particular thing. For example, um, I'll kind of bring a personal example. When I went through my divorce in 2016, I felt like, oh my gosh, every year I was making pozole for Christmas. It became like my new Christmas thing because my ex-husband was from Mexico and he loved making pozole. I loved eating pozole. So I started to learn how to make it and it became my Christmas tradition. Well, then after we divorced, I felt like, wow, you know, like I've kind of lost this this thing that became a part of me, something that was really important to me. So I said, hell no to that. And the first time I made it, I felt so like at peace, like I can still love this. This can still be my tradition. It's been the same thing since my breakup earlier this year, where now I can listen to alternative music and I can love it and it can become something that I love. And then with this particular breakup, I've, I've adopted so many different things from that person that I kind of gained. And sometimes when I listen to certain songs or watch certain movies, or if I have certain smells that I smell, certain images that I see, it'll bring me serious grief. But little by little, the more I kind of expose myself to it, kind of like exposure therapy, exposure can sometimes be a good thing to work through those feelings because it's like, I can still take this as now a part of me. It's going to become part of me and less a part of that other person. It takes time. And you got you to gotta allow people to express all the black and white statements. So then sooner or later, we're going to work towards that gray. But you don't bring in that gray yet. You let, them, you let them color in all the black and all the white and everything that's similar. And then you let them slowly, over time, start to do the gray. That makes so much sense. And it really uh, is true for me. Like I have to go through that period of being like, fuck them. And then I'm like, okay, wait, yeah, <laughs> maybe there's some gray there. If we have, if we hold on to this view too, of like, they, they took everything from us and that we don't have anything of our own anymore. That's a very dangerous, you know, way to now go through life is all these things they've taken away. And I have, I have seen clients that have that view it that way and stay angry and in grief and in mourning for years and years and years and years way past a hurt or pain in their life because they view that those things are gone for them and they can't have them again. And that is, that is really heartbreaking to watch that. Yeah. So what did we learn? What did we gain? And my therapist is also working on this with me right now. So this is not a like an easy thing to just kind of come to terms with, oh, this is what I learned. Now I'm going to move on. That's that's some bullshit. That's not life. So we have to we have to let things happen and go through that process. However, it happens. Mm. It's it's not a concrete thing. And if there was also a guide to this. <laughs> Listen, 
two guides. Where are they? We need them. <laughs> Send us the goddamn guides. Okay. Let me ask you this. What do we do with the pain of trusting people who hurt us? Like the heartbreak itself. What do we fucking do with that? We dig holes. We, we try to climb the mountain, but on the way to the mountain, we dig holes. You know, we bury the things that uh, we bury the dreams that we had while we were with this person. We bury some memories that will only um, bring us pain. And we try our best to, to also dig holes to find the things that we want to take with us on the journey that we want to, you know, the treasure that is buried there. We try to dig for those. And sometimes we don't find them. Sometimes we just dig and we're just digging through dirt and we're not getting anywhere. You know, sometimes our shovel is too small. Sometimes our shovel gets a little bit easier to manage to dig those holes, but we're digging our, we're digging our way through it basically. It's so unpredictable because as you're going through, many times as we are going through breakups, we're also going through other things. You know, some people are doing breakups with kids. <laughs> you know, you're trying to dig yourself out of a hole and then your kids are digging holes too. And you got to help them find the treasure. You got to be able to help them to move on. And I see it all the time in the work that I do with children, you know, as parents that are also human beings and going through things. And it's, so intensely difficult to climb that mountain of grief and to be able to get to the other side in some shape that's that's manageable a person that can still derive joy a person that can still find purpose and still move on towards their life's goals you know like like before I got in my breakup I had all these goals and these things that I really wanted to see happen in my life and because I've had to spend, you know, months on end in grief, I can't, it's it's hard to look at those goals. I got this huge mountain in the way, you know, these things that I really wanted, I kind of put on the back burner to focus on relationships. And now I have to go back to trying to get over this mountain so I can really look at those goals again and keep my eyes fixed on them. So in a way you have to be able to say, what did I get out of this? What what am I digging up? What am I bearing? What am I keeping? And I have to walk up that mountain. I can't run, can't sprint. I'm going to get out of breath. I'm going to fall down. It's, you know, I've got a lot of baggage on my back to carry with me from previous ones. And now I got a harder job ahead of me. But once I get there, I know I'm going to be better and I'm going to, and I'm going to be on a better playing field for anything that comes my way next you know i'll be like oh wait a minute i've seen this mountain before let me just hold on up before i jump into something that's not good for me <laughs> i don't know if i want to repeat that again <laughs> right yeah because that's the thing about having our trust sort of obliterated as as um much as we want to avoid that and much and as painful as it is what it does that helps us is next time we are i think we learn right we learn Hey, that red flag, don't fucking ignore that red flag. Or like, oh, hey, maybe I try to find out if this person and I, our, our, our quadrants are lined up, right? Like if we are in a place where we can grow together, where it makes sense, where it's not just about like, oh, we both fucking, we both like to drink, you know, <laughs> like, what well, you know, we both like going to the zoo, whatever the fuck it is, like, yeah, maybe it's about, hey, hey, are we in a same place maturity wise? Can we 
really meet each other? Can we, can I feel safe with you? Right. And I think that unfortunately, sometimes these, these, um, life-changing trust exploding situations happen so that we make different choices going forward. Absolutely. And sometimes you also, the thing you have to bury on one side of the mountain is in a way, the kind of person and the kind of way that you saw things for a while. Yeah. Like you can't just kind of say, yeah, I'll be the same person after this, you know, this grief you kind of have to say, no, I'm not going to be the same person, but that's what I mean about you have to be able to go to, to be okay with bearing that part of yourself and saying, but I'm going to still rejuvenate and I'm going to still move my way through the quadrant for myself and move myself to a better place, regardless of this thing that I have to now bury and say goodbye to. And it takes having really good support on your side to be able to help you move through that. And it's about also acknowledging these things that you did gain from, you know, this person or this situation or this work battle you had to go through. So. Yeah. I, I really love that metaphor of burying to let things go, put them in their graves and, and digging for the buried treasure. Yeah. Let me ask this last question. I think one of the most painful things about trusting and getting hurt is the feeling that we don't want to trust ever again, right? Like we're shutting down, we're closing our hearts, we're done. How do we stay open after a heartbreak? How do we allow ourselves to be vulnerable again? I think hope is the thing that will a lot of times push us towards keeping our hearts open ultimately, because there's so many reasons to say But if I don't put myself in this situation again, then I won't be dealing with this again. So, you know, why not just close yourself off to I'm not going to get another relationship or I'm not going to allow myself to fall in love. I'm not going to allow myself to make new friends just so they can shut me out and not care about me and end up showing me that they're not not really going to be there for me. And the only thing I think that helps us to move to the other side is like we just have this hope. And, and hope is stronger than fear. And so like we have this hope that if we get to this place, we'll be we'll have that better relationship. We'll have those better friendships. We'll be in a better work situation. We'll be able to be healthier in a better way. You know, like we have a hope that our quadrant will go up and that we'll be in a better place or that we'll be in a better situation in the future. And I think some of that is sometimes the driving force to what pushes you towards a further thing. And I don't want to talk about my life again, but it's like, I, I find different things in here really meaningful because I was formerly very religious for a very, very large portion of my life. And I was very, very religious, very, very involved. And it was the main guiding force that moved everything in my life. And I kept on feeling like, what can I trust? Well, my religion makes it very clear. You can trust Christians because they also have the same you know, God that you do, and he's watching you and guiding you. And so, and he is with them too. So these are people that you can trust. And this is a place where you can trust. And this is a religion that you can trust because it's the only true religion. Talk about obliterating. I went through a faith crisis um, a couple of years ago and it finally blew up in 2021. And I was forced to say, I don't trust any of that. And I had all these things happen 
over many, many years. 2010 was a big year for that. 2011 was a huge year for that. 2016 was a big year. Um, I had so many things that happened that showed me that ultimately my trust was placed in the wrong place. Sometimes we have to we have to figure out what are we really looking for with our trust? You know, like, what am I looking for in a friendship? Is this somebody that's going to constantly tell me what I want to hear? Is this somebody that's going to make me feel better about myself? Is this a religion that's going to finally give me the community that I've been wanting to have since I was a child? Is this, you know, a relationship going to finally show me how beautiful I am and how lovable I am? What are we looking for? What, what is that hope that we have on the other side? And being able to know that I can try to trust myself and that ultimately myself, my life, my own personal anxiety and my own feelings that are going to ultimately lead me to that better place. Yeah, I really hope so. But it takes work to get there. And that's what I think. That's what I think this work is about with our mental health is not just about like, yeah, I'm going to try to fix these things that are temporary and that are happening to me right now. But how is this going to push me into a better place into the future to where even things that look really, really good, but are not in my best interest, my best friend voice is going to pop up and it's going to say, bitch, move the fuck on. This is not for you. Move on. Or it's going to say, if you don't try this, then you'll always wonder. Mm. You'll always say to yourself, why didn't you try? Why didn't you give it a chance? Mm. Wait and see how it turns out. But when we hone in on that voice and we listen to it, because it's in our spirit somewhere, it wants us to do well. We want to move on. We want to be happy. We want to be fulfilled. We want to have a purpose. It's it's that part of us on the inside that we got to listen to. Oh, I love that. I think that's such a gorgeous way to end this conversation is that trusting yourself is an integral part of trusting others. We have to really lean into how does this make me feel? What is my intuition? What is my best friend voice telling me? And when we get into a place where like for me, when I go into that place of shaming and and critical self-talk, rather than being like, huh, maybe I should trust this anxious feeling. Maybe this isn't me pushing men away. Maybe this is me having a feeling about a creepy dude because that dude is creepy, you know? And I think this is such an important piece of this whole conversation when we're healing trust is that we can't think about healing our trust with others unless we're also healing trust with ourselves. That is so key. Michelle, thank you so, so much for coming on and for sharing so much of your story and joining me in this conversation. I've, I feel like I've learned so much and I'm going to forever think about that quadrant. Wait, name the four things on the quadrant again. It is. And again, the quadrant is not about we have to be perfectly aligned in all these different things, but it's where are we and where is the other person and does it correlate somewhat? And that's stability, maturity, healthy and kind. I love it. And Michelle, if people want to get a hold of you, how can they find you? Well, hey, I have a website. It's michellecobble.com. <laughs> and then also you can find my wonderful, amazing group practice. It's called Apple Tree Counseling. We work with children, adolescents, adults in the Northern Virginia area. So you can find us at appletreecounselingllc.org. Awesome. And if you want to get a hold of me, you can find me on Insta at the Pachama Party or on my personal Insta at Remy's. You can also email me at patramaparty at gmail.com. 
If you have a topic you'd like to hear covered, hit me up. Also, if you want to join the Patrama Party community, find us on Facebook. It's such a cool fucking group of listeners. We check in with each other about the stuff we're going through and offer each other support and resources. So if you're into that, just search the Patrama Party and I'll add you. Speaking of support, if this pod has helped you and you have a minute, rate, review, subscribe. It really does help. And I read all of the reviews. And if you'd like to support the pod, you can now. You can give a dollar a month, $5, whatever. I pour myself into this podcast. I put so much time and energy into it. So if you're able and moved to, just go to anchor.fm forward slash the Patrama Party and scroll down to the support button. You can also find the support option on Spotify. And until next time, baby, enjoy the party.